0: In you I find my joy All right, well, hey, it is very good to be with you guys, and Merry Christmas. How's that? Yeah? That's pretty good. Um, we are in our Advent series called Signs Point, and... Uh, the entire idea of this series is to look at the places in the Bible that acted as signs pointing to the coming of Jesus. Um, there's these prophetic moments. There's these prophets who spoke about, and these moments in the scriptures that speak about uh, Jesus coming, uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And um, the, the reality is this: is that all signs point to greater realities. So one of the examples that we've used in the past, little uh, kind of imagery for you, is the sign pointing to a restaurant. Let's say that there's this nice restaurant that you want to go to with your friends, and um, you drive all the way to the restaurant just to see the sign with the name, and maybe it even has an arrow right here. That's where the restaurant is. And you see the sign, and you go, oh, that's amazing, and then you just drive home. It's like, no, what? The sign points to the meal. And so all these signs that, we're, that we've been reading about, what we read about last week with uh, Genesis chapter three, these signs point to greater uh, reality. So the question that I have for us through this series is this. What is the reality of the Messiah coming? What does Christmas mean? What does Emmanuel actually mean? Last week we talked about the son of man, the crushing of the snake, and uh, if you missed that, go check it out. It was uh, just really, really fun. Um, But tonight, we're in Isaiah. So flipping your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Basically, in the middle of your Bible, if you just split your Bible down the middle and turn to the left a little bit, you'll be in Isaiah uh, chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. And we're going to look at just a passage that um, is a very well-known one, probably kind of a famous passage. Most people, even if you... uh, are not a follower of Jesus, and you live in the United States, you probably have heard of this passage, so Isaiah 9 is where we're going to be. Now, what you need to know is that Isaiah is a prophet, which basically means this, he speaks on behalf of God to the people of God, and sometimes to people who are not people of God, other nations and other peoples, and uh, what he's doing essentially as a prophet is he's making known the pathos of God. It's kind of funny to think of God having moods or mood swings or anything like that, but God has a personality. Um, He created people with personalities who are made in his image, and he actually has a personality, and what prophets do is they reveal the personality, the thoughts, the feelings of God to humans, and um, what we are going to read is, uh, I believe, um, part of a different era, if you will. Um, It's actually talking about the era that we now live in, but it's pre-Christ, um, it's pre-salvation, it's pre-grace even. And uh, so sometimes you read the Old Testament prophets and they sound a little different than New Testament prophecy. You read about I feel like I need to make a note about this before I jump in. Um, you, you read like First Corinthians 14:3 and it says that prophecy strengthens, encourages, and like, comforts people. And then you go to like Jeremiah and you're like, "Strengthening, encouraging,, I don't where? Um, And it was, you know, obviously like a rebuke from the Lord to come back into alignment is actually something that strengthens, encourages, and can be comforting, especially when you believe the truth. But um, they were speaking a little bit differently. One of the things that I like to, the way that I like to think about these prophets is they're confronting uh, with the severity of righteousness, the severity of sin. Sin has yet to be died for. Blood has yet to be shed by a perfect sacrifice like Jesus. And so it sounds a little bit different. Okay, okay. That being said, um, what we need to know before we jump into Isaiah chapter 9 is that Isaiah 8 is all about how without the word of God in your life, without God's presence in your life, him speaking to you, darkness is the result. And it's pretty bleak. Look up here. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then... They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Just describing what the state of humanity is like without God. Um, No direction, no sense of purpose, no sense of meaning, just fearful gloom. Have you ever been there? you ever lived in fearful gloom? I have. I spent most of my high school years in fearful gloom. Gloom. Well, here's what happens next. Look down at your Bibles. Isaiah chapter nine. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land, speaking of God, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. How? Skip down to verse six. Here's what he says. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The antidote to a wandering life, the antidote to a life that is unclear and seems gloomy and dark, is God himself setting up his government in your life, the government of God. There is so much in this passage. We won't have time to get to all of it tonight, but I want to get kind of specific about this. What exactly is this great light that increases joy? It's the child and his government. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born. Now, if you were here last week, this will be kind of familiar language to you this child language. What is that? Well, remember, there's going to be offspring of Eve. There's going to be a child that comes from Eve who eventually crushes the head of this serpent who deceived humanity and convinced humanity to throw away their God-given authority. So when we read this, wait, a child? We've been looking for a child. A child is born. To us, a son is given. Think son of man, Daniel chapter 7 if again, if you were not here last week, go back and listen. We did a kind of in-depth dive into Daniel chapter seven and this language of the Son of Man. What is that? The Son of Man is the one who can who can sit on the throne next to Yahweh and rule over creation, making humans human again, giving them back that relationship with God like they once had. And it says this, and the government will be on his shoulders. So there's there's somehow authority and government involved in this, and then probably my favorite part of the passage and maybe yours as well. The names of God, the names of this governor, the the names of this son, of this child, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the greatness of this government, there will be no end. Now, here's what I want you to notice for this moment. He will reign on whose throne? David's throne a little bit strange, he's gonna reign on David's throne, okay, and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it. Now, a couple of things here. This caught my attention a couple of years ago when I noticed that he's this government is David's government. This rule is from David's throne. Why his throne? You you would think that when God prophesies about Jesus coming, about the Messiah coming to redeem all of creation, to crush the head of the snake, to release humans from captivity and bondage to sin, into freedom, walking with the Spirit, all of that, you would think that God would say something like this. You've never seen a throne like this before. There's been other thrones. Israel, you've had other kings, but you have never seen a king like this. He's going to establish Yahweh's throne. But it doesn't say that. It says he's going to establish David's throne and rule from David's throne. What what, why? Why? I want to propose to you this evening that David so impressed God with his life that God didn't want to do his own thing, God wanted to do David's thing. You're like, what? Here's, Here's what I mean. David was the closest thing we have seen before Jesus to what it looks like to rule alongside God. Because David ruled through relationship. How many of you guys understand that the Christian life is not about you doing the right things all the time, it's about how close you stay to the Father. So you look at David's life and you're like, David's throne, uh, that's kind of a messed up throne. Yeah, but it was never about it being a clean or squeaky throne, it was about the person who hosted God in their life and ruled alongside God. He wants to do what David was doing. While many had come before David to lead Israel, David was the first who made relationship with God the way that he ruled, the way that he led the nation. So, if Isaiah chapter nine is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Emmanuel, then what is this government and kingdom about? Since this government, it says it right here, the government will be on his shoulders, Whatever characterizes him, this son, this child, will be the foundation of his governing, how he governs. So we get these four identity statements about the coming Messiah, and these speak to these four different aspects of God and, in turn, the government of God. Wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Jesus is gonna be a wonderful, what does it mean for God to be a wonderful counselor? Well, I think it means a couple different things. First, it means that he's a legal representative have you ever heard of a lawyer referred to as a counselor? I need to get with my counsel? This is actually what the word is often translated in other different places as legal counsel. So what is that? What does your legal counsel do for you? It argues your case. It presents your side of the story. What is this kind of kingdom? Well, it's, it's personal. You have your own counselor who can give you counsel about what actions to take in life and who will argue your case. But I also think of a counselor. Going to visit a counselor to get therapy. What is this? It's thought alignment. What do you do with a counselor? You go to a counselor and you go, I got all of this stuff. Here's my backpack of stuff. And you unzip it and you you, you vomit it all out, and they go, Oh, let's we'll, t- we'll get there in a second. We'll get there in a second, we'll get there in a second. And, and I think this is what we need to talk about. And you go, Oh, yes. I'm getting free by the moment. I was just I'm talking to somebody who is going through counseling. And that's how they described it. It's like all of the stuff in their heart had been kind of pulled, 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 pulled. And finally it was like, there's the pain right there. And here's the belief attached to that. And we actually have to bring our thoughts into alignment with the gospel. That's what a counselor does. He's the wonderful counselor. I just want to say this. (laughs) Okay, I might get myself in trouble for this, but it's okay. I, I do want to say this on this point. Counseling, great. I love it what I just described it. We can do it for one another. It's part of the gift that God has given in community. But if he promises to be something, let's at least exhaust our options with him before we turn to human elements and human abilities. It, it, it applies to so many other things, but I, I just think when God promises things, we should at least take him at his word and just, and just press him on it and go, you said you're gonna be my counselor. I need counsel right now. You said I have the mind of Christ. I need your thoughts right now. Help me. We're in a crisis right now as a nation of thinking. Incorrect thinking, thinking that's out of line with the kingdom, and it is our privilege. It is, it is one of the greatest joys of our lives to wake up every morning and to say, I need to exchange my thoughts for yours because I'm thinking this way, and it doesn't line up with what you've said. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the everlasting father. I love this one. Do you know the importance of a secure father for identity creation? Um, it, it, there's a lot of you who grew up without a dad. <laughs> Or you grew up with a dad who's distant, or a dad who really wasn't secure enough to help you create an identity. And it doesn't really matter um, if that dad was blood related or not, or if you find a dad who is blood related who does help you do this or not. We need people in our lives, people who are older than us, people who have gone before us. Uh, to help us know, oh, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to celebrate the giftings that I've been given. This is what it means to be a secure person and to know, you know, what, I just wanna, can I, I wanna honor you, Jake, because um, I was just talking to some people today about you. When you became a father, the security that you got is providing for your family just this new, like, it's this new building. And it's almost like I'd seen you, we've known each other for a long time and I've, I've seen you go through life and mature and mature and mature, but when you became a father, it was like, oh, that's what a dad looks like. It's somebody who creates almost like a, um, like a scaffolding for a family. And so when this, I think about this, an everlasting father, man, we need that because our fathers on earth, they're mortal. We need an everlasting father. This idea of, of the most important relationship, a relationship that lasts, the only true anchor, the only true rock of ages, the only thing your life can really be thrust upon is him. He's the everlasting father. God, I need to be fathered. And I just pray for you, if you're here tonight and you're like, I actually don't have a father and I don't have that father figure, I actually believe there's spiritual fathers and mothers being raised up in this house and you will get fathered here, but I also believe that God will be your father and that he will help create an identity in you that is secure and strong. Mighty God, what does that mean? What this means is that God is powerful, that he can do something about your situation, and so you become powerful when you're related with him. You are designed to represent his power here today, and so our lives as disciples, they essentially become a a life of learning to steward the character, wisdom, and power of God. I have access to a mighty God, so when I'm faced with an issue, when somebody needs healing, when, when there's an issue in my life, when there's a situation going on that I feel so out of control with, I actually have access to power. I actually have an answer to the most important things in life, which are the things of the heart, mighty God. And lastly, Prince of Peace. I love this one. The Hebrew word here for, um, for prince is the word sar, which is more translated commander, captain, or Chief. So think about it like this. The commander of peace. The captain of peace. The chief of peace. How fascinating is it that, that there's a military word used to describe someone who's so peaceful? Jesus will be in charge of peace. He is the strategist for peace and without his battle plan there will be no peace. So we need the commander of peace in our lives. These are the promises, these names, they characterize this government, and they're the promise for what you can expect in your life when he is king and when your life is made up of his government. Power, peace, correct thinking, lasting fathership. This is why making him king is so important. Now, I wanted to talk about those things, but what I really want to focus the rest of our evening is with this. I want to focus on this line, The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. What God is saying in this passage is that it is His zeal that reveals and accomplishes His intentions towards us. None of this government that we've been talking about happens without the zeal of God towards us. So I want to talk just briefly about His zeal. I would argue that it was God's zeal towards humanity that produced Jesus. The wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace, all come from zeal. Now, what is zeal? What is zeal? Uh, It's devotion that causes risk-taking. That's what zeal is. It's devotion to something to such a degree that it causes you to take risks for that thing. Like, think of what, what comes to mind when you hear the word zealot. Um, maybe it's even kind of a negative term in in our culture, zealot. Think about that. Um, It's somebody who's a fanatic, right? They're a fanatic, man, that guy's such a zealot for that cause. That person's such a zealot for that idea, for that political party. They're such a zealot. Almost kind of this negative connotation, like that's kind of annoying. Um, There's almost this feeling of like somebody who's a zealot is unstable. (laughs) The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I think zeal is actually closely related to compassion. You know, you see in the Gospels, Jesus' zeal is often exemplified through his compassion for people, motivating him to touch people that the law says he shouldn't touch and speak to people that the the culture says he shouldn't speak to and, and, and to honestly, at the very end of his life, reject the very instinct that all of humanity has and to allow himself to be killed at the age of 33. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. It's his zeal for you. His zeal for us. He's a fanatic about relationship with humans. See, I I believe that whatever God is zealous about, we should be zealous about as well. So, the real question of Christmas is how will you respond to his zeal? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. What will be your response? I believe the correct response to Christmas to him coming, to his zeal, is our zeal. (laughs) It's for us to be zealous. When I was 17 years old, I came to faith, and um, I had such a radical transformation that I, I, um, oh, what's that old hymn? It's like, no turning back, no turning back. I, you know, yeah, I've decided to follow Jesus. There it is, to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. That's what it was for me at 17. I, I remember just like being so zealous for God. Um, I, I, every day became almost this adventure for me of like, what will he ask me to do today? Who will he ask me to speak to today? And the reality is that people share whatever's helped them. <laughs> it's just true. So if you, you know, I was thinking about this with evangelism, like, how does it? why does the church not have this, uh, an evangelistic, camp, I mean, capital C church, why are we not more evangelistic? It's like people share what's helped them. So maybe we've just been doing religion and we actually haven't been helped by God. It's like, if we really knew his, good, his goodness, we'd actually believe he was good enough to share. That produces zeal. It's like the zeal of the Lord is producing this zeal in me. So anyways, I remember there's this one time I go to this laundromat. I don't even know how I, I had laundry at my house. I don't know how I ended up at this laundromat. I'm 17 years old. I'm sitting there and there's this older couple doing their laundry there. And the whole time I'm just like, my heart is like burning with love for them. I'm like, God loves these people so much. Oh my gosh. I'm like getting sweaty. I'm thinking about how much God loves these people. <laughs> and I'm just like, the zeal. I remember I walk over to them. I'm like, hey, I got to talk to you guys. I know this is crazy. I don't care. I don't, this is what a zealot does. I do not care what you think about me. I have to share this with you. And I'm just like, here's the, the Lord loves you so much. And he has all this for you. I can't do it countless times. The zeal of the Lord consumed me. At Saints Hill, you guys are a zealous people. This is a zealous church. I I hear it, and I talk to people, they're like, yeah, I tried Saints Hill, I just can't really go there, the worship's too long. I'm like, okay, (laughs) well, you're not a zealot, don't come, if you're not a zealot, it's fine. Um, It's like, there's no, there's like no spectators here. There's just, you can't be a spectator here. There, you, know, I mean, I, you know, I stand up here, and I know who, I see you guys. Like, you know, I, I recognize your faces. And, and I know who comes and goes from the church. I think there's probably been like 1,000 plus people who have come to this church and left. <laughs> I got a really good track record of, of causing people to leave our church. And, and just like Exodus. And you know, a lot of, like church, a lot of church planners would be like very disappointed. They're like, man, what am I, am I not meeting the community? Like, what, Have I totally miscalculated? Am I not contextualized? Like all this stuff. And I'm like, well, no, like, this church is not just for those who want to dip their toes in the water. It's for those who are, like, swimming already. And here's why. Here's why. Here's why. Because you're, like, going to go, oh, my gosh, swimming already? Do you not care about the lost? No, I care about the lost. I just care about you finding the lost. Like, my goal is not for people the lost to come here. That's fine if they do. I'm sure people who who are lost will come here and they'll get saved. It's happened before. It's very beautiful. But my goal is for you to get so zealous about the zeal of God that you are unstoppable force in your community and in your workplace and in your dorm room. That people, when they bump up against you, they're like, they got something on them. I wish I had that. That's the goal. That's the vision. It's very different. I don't know. Maybe there's just not, like I didn't grow up in churches like this, so maybe this is just kind of new and people are like, what is this? It's almost seven o'clock. Like okay, I'm sorry. I don't know. It's like, what do you want me to do? Like, tell the Lord, like, please stop. Hey, could you pause? Cause like, it's almost seven. I don't know. Like, but what I know is that is that I, I every week, like last week, guys. Oh my gosh. Did you feel that? Like, I don't know. It's just the Lord. Just he's coming near and he's just setting people on fire and he's doing stuff and it's like I'm not gonna stop that. It's the zeal of the Lord. It's the zeal of the Lord for His house for His people. And just watch out. You're going to get caught on fire. (laughs) I, I just see like a loving people responding to the love of God. And this has been our vision from the very beginning, to know his mind, to see his character, that it changes us. Like I'm thinking back on this year. Jake and I were talking about this last night. I'm just thinking back on, you know, on 2020. Guys, our church grew in depth. It grew even in number. Our church grew in passion for the Lord. It grew in so many different ways, and we're like, 2020 was like a dumpster fire. Like, I, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's amazing. Like, how many of you, I gave a sermon, uh, like a year ago, um, January 5th or something like that, and, I, and I, every year I try to, I, I have a sermon that I give, and I say, here's what I feel like prophetically the Lord's doing this year. Kind of like a theme for the year. And the Lord had pressed on my heart, like, strong impression. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know, that sounds like a good idea, I'll talk about this. But this, last year, was like, this is the year of freedom. And I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, sounds nice, I love freedom. And then we had a shutdown, we had a lockdown. It's like, freedom? How many of you, you are more free right now than you were a year ago? Like, honestly, Me. I, there's so many things that the Lord just said, yeah, that's a lesser thing, you just gotta get rid of it. Yeah, you, that's not the point of your life. Yeah, this actually right here, this is where you need to really put your time and energy. Yeah, actually that, don't think that way. Think this way. Over and over. It was like a boot camp of freedom. Um, and, and I just see a church, like I see our church just, just growing in freedom. Growing in this, and um, Andoni said it so well, we had an elder meeting today, and Andoni just said, he's like, It's like we had a culture of non-performance before, but it's like there's no performance in our culture. We're not performing for God, not trying to like win his approval. We we sing the song, you've already approved of me. It's just freedom. Like how many of you, you've come here, or maybe not, it doesn't have to be here, but just this past year, you've gotten a word, a prophetic word from God that has changed your thinking or changed your life? How many of you? Yeah, me too. In fact, I actually want to share one with you. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was, um, I was uh, discouraged about the shutdown, the, the latest shutdown. Now, fortunately, it only lasted two weeks, and here we are. We're back together. I'm so happy about that. Um, but I was a little bit discouraged about it, and I was just like, what, I was wondering, honestly, I was like, when is the church going to stand up and just say, enough is enough, and we're going to meet? It's not really my my place to say we rent space from a church, and so my job is to honor them. But I was just thinking like, man, when is there going to be like some people that just say, no, it's actually time for the church to continue to be the church, and to not let governors tell the church what they can or can't do. Personal opinion, you don't have to agree with me. Um, but I was really discouraged by it, and and I, and I, we had this great gathering, I was just thinking, oh man, when are we at, you know, the last time they said 15 days to slow the spread, and then it was six months. So I'm thinking like, man, if you do the math and the ratio, then it's going to be like another six months. Um, so anyways, I was, I, but I was standing right over here after the gathering. I was just thinking, man, that was awesome. I just love gathering. It was so good. I'm standing over here and uh, this young man, I don't know if he's, he's probably not, I think he's probably, he's a Fox student, so he's probably back home. But he came over to me and he's like, hey, I feel like I, I have a word for you. I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, oh, I noticed you were a little bit frustrated about the shutdown and all that. And he's like, it's totally reasonable to reasonably to be so, and he said, um, but you know, he's like, you know when uh, when in a sports game, pick your favorite, um, you know in a game when the home team is just scoring, they just are like, every shot is going in, we use basketball, every shot is going in, every shot they take, they can't miss, they're on fire, the home team, the crowd's behind them, what is that called? It's momentum, right? He's like, when that happens, the only thing that the opposing team can do call a timeout that's all they can do just in, in hopes that if they call a timeout that maybe they can stop the momentum and he said he's like the enemy is calling a timeout right now and trying to stop the momentum of this church and then he's like do you know what happens if the home team comes out of that timeout and they score again he's like it's game over He's like, the roof of this place, if you come back after the shutdown and you score again, <laughs> you know, the Lord moves, the roof of this place is going to just be blown off. I was like, whoa, that's a word. I held on to it. Guys, last week we scored again. <laughs> last week? It was so powerful. The Lord was like, I mean, there's time. I'm like, I'm like looking at who's leading worship and everybody just has like tears streaming down their faces. the Lord meeting them so sweetly. It was just so powerful. It's like, uh, man, I cannot wait for what's gonna happen. It's just 2021, it's gonna be amazing. Um, for a while at the beginning when we planted this church, sorry, this is like such just like a living room talk. Hopefully you're cool with this. Um, for, for a while, and if you're not, well, you can just join the thousands of people who have left the church. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to hear from my wife when I get home about this one. Sorry. Okay. Spirit of wisdom. <laughs> Jake and I joked when we planted the church, we, we, we kind of joked, we said, you know, I think what we're doing is we're coming and, we're, and we're, we, have these, we have these values, this vision, these things that we want to do. And, and it's almost like we're delivering a meal that Newberg doesn't have an appetite for. It almost felt like, like you know, we, we really believed in what we were doing. We'd seen the fruit of it at other, in other ministries. We're like, man, we really believe that God's going to move here, and we, we feel like a call, like we're supposed to be here, but is anybody hungry for this? Guys, it feels like um, everybody, we're all hungry for it. Like, I used to feel like I would come to church, and I'd be carrying this thing. I'd kind of gear myself up, like, okay, I'm going to teach people. They're going to look at me like this. And now it's like people are like, oh. I want truth, I love him, I want to know what he has to say, what is is the Holy Spirit gonna do now? And it's just like, wow, you guys are so amazing, I'm so grateful for you, I'm so grateful for this church, and I really sense that we're experiencing the first fruits of revival, I really do, which the first fruits of revival always tend to be the renewing of the mind. It's, it's Revival always begins with Christians actually getting renewed in their relationship with the Lord. I really think we're seeing this renewal of the bride that comes before massive revival. So I just want to talk about this for a moment. Revival is the zeal of God meeting the zeal of humanity. That's what it is. And this is our aim. This is our aim. The zeal of God meeting the zeal of humanity. I, I'm built for revival. Like I long for it, I celebrate it when I see it. I believe that we're currently um, experiencing the first fruits of it. And it's just—it's such a beautiful um, thing when God is just reviving a people and reviving a place and just, and just and, and aligning minds and hearts with, with his. Um, somebody during the Welsh revival about 100 years ago, they said this, when God is moving, all people wanna do is meet together. <laughs> And there's nothing more interesting and more compelling than anointed meetings of God's people. Like, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but this is like, Sunday night is my favorite night of the week, my favorite place to be. I just, every time, I'm like, what is he gonna do now? A young girl who was a part of the same revival, the Welsh revival, she captured the feeling when she cried out at one point in the gathering, oh, what will heaven be like if it's so wonderful down here? I believe that revival is a time and space where hope is inescapable because heaven is being accessed here and now. This is what Jesus, we just prayed it, this is what he taught us to pray, this is the direction of our lives. In another revival just 45 years later on some Scottish islands, here's a couple accounts of what what happens in revival. A woman named Mary Peckham said this about their, their church gatherings in this time period. It seemed as if heaven was bending down over my soul. And that I would soon be taken up to be with the Lord. What a glorious atmosphere. Have you felt heaven bend over you? Uh, Another woman, uh, Catherine Campbell, she said this, I didn't care who was around me. That night I came to Christ. It was heaven on earth. Everything was made new. That was about 70 years ago. See, I believe some of you have experienced what these people um, experienced as well. And so my question is, how will we continue to respond to God's zeal here in Newburgh? How will we continue to respond to his zeal as the people of God? So three thoughts for us as we close. First, we need to believe his promise. We need to believe his promises. That's how we respond to his zeal. That Scottish revival that I was talking about, um, it started with a small group of people gathered for a prayer gathering, and the blacksmith, that's all that we know, Mr. Smith, the blacksmith, here's what he said. He prayed this. Oh God, you made a promise to pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And Lord, it's not happening. I don't know about others in this room, but if I know my own heart, I know that I am thirsty. If you don't do it, how can I ever believe you again? Your honor is at stake. You are a covenant-keeping God. Fulfill your covenant engagement. (laughs) And they say that the account goes that that night, the, the, the place where they met was shaken. And the revival began shortly after that. Zealous people grab onto the promises of God and they pray differently. They say, you are a covenant-keeping God. Your honor is at stake. Pour water on dry ground. I need you. So think about these passages in light of this. This is in Luke 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's a promise would cause us to change our, how we pray. Or how about this one, John 14? Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. <laughs> what if we believed that, that one? Um it was a debate in scholarship about whether he's referring to, you'll do greater works because there's gonna be more of you. And so in number, you'll do greater, there'll be more works. Or is he saying you'll do greater works like things that I never did, you're going to do, quality? It doesn't really matter. It just seems like we at least aren't going to do less than him, right? (laughs) So this would change how we pray. This would change if we really believe this. It would change our focus and our aim. See, God doesn't need to be convinced to do what he said he will do, but he is looking for a people who actually believe his promises, and I believe that he's found some here at this church. Secondly, I want to make sure that we always celebrate where we are and what we've tasted. If we want to respond to his zeal, if we want our zeal to meet his, then we actually need to respond with celebration to what he is doing. Um, There are things that will kill what God is doing in a place, and one of the primary things that will kill the movement of God is a focus on lack. There are entire church movements, entire focuses on lack, and actually the, the lack is used to keep people humble or to keep people not reaching for things that they really shouldn't. The reality is that Jesus said pray on earth as it is in heaven, he didn't say, he didn't tell us how much of heaven to ask for, he just said ask for it. And so it's actually our job not to go, well I don't really know if he could do that. That seems a little extreme, but maybe he could do that. No, he just said pray for heaven. Don't focus on lack, focus on my surplus. My job is regardless of what I have seen in the past, Or what I want to see, you know, you read about past revivals, you're like, I want to see this. It's regardless of what I have seen in the past. Or want to see, my job is to celebrate what he's doing in me and my family. I believe that this is the key to a lifestyle of never feeling distant from God. How many of you have, just be honest, you've ever felt distant from God? I've felt distant from God in my life. Um, We have come to normalize feeling distant from God in the church. Even sort of sanctify it, we create theologies. The dark night of the soul is a theology that um, explains feeling distant from God. Some things happen so frequently we stop asking if they should happen at all. God is not distant, but sometimes we place distant distance in the relationship. <laughs> You're like, what? Okay. See, we set limitations for what we can expect from God by our understanding of his character and goodness. So if you question his goodness or you question his character, then you will inherently in your mind build up walls and limitations for how much of God you can experience based upon your behavior. So if God isn't good, you don't understand his goodness, and there are stipulations to his presence, there's reasons for his absence, and they have to do with what you did or what you thought, then you may feel distant from God. This is kind of funny, but I've had times of sin in my life, times of sin where I've known that it's in my life, and I keep on doing the things that I don't want to do, right? I'm like, gee whiz, I am a pastor, let alone a Christian, and I'm doing this stuff. Selfishness, lust, anger, those are kind of the trifecta for me, and I've had these seasons of sin, and I've still felt close to God in those seasons, and honestly, it puzzled me a little bit. It was like, what? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm angry with my wife and I'm yelling at my wife and I'm, and I'm selfish over here and I'm using all my money for this. I'm lusting after this person. I, and it's like, but still, I feel like you love me and I feel like you're close to me. Why? So I asked the Lord, why are you close to somebody like me? And here's what I feel like he said to me. He said, Alex, your sin doesn't separate you from me. Jesus took care of that already. You will be forever and are already righteous. It's an identity. But there is one thing that can place a distance between you from me, and it's what you believe about me. If you believe lies about me, you will feel distant from me. See, I believe that we can have his presence at all times, and the only thing that would keep him from us is our belief that he isn't close to us because of what we've done. It's the very reason why Christ came, was to solve that issue. This is what the enemy does in Genesis chapter three. God is disconnected, doesn't really know what you need, and so just take a hold of it yourself. Our ability to celebrate what he's doing, regardless of our, even our behavior, to go, you know, I know God, I I, I don't actually deserve any of this, but still, I see you as faithful here. I see you as forgiving here. I I, I notice that you gave that person a prophetic word there. Oh, somebody was healed there, and you and you, you take these things, and you just begin to celebrate the little things. What is that? That's how you steward renewal. That's how you remain in relationship with God is you don't disagree with his character. It's a very basic kingdom principle. What you thank God for, you see more of. Remember Jesus when he broke the bread and it multiplied? What did he do right before that? He gave thanks. What you thank God for, you see more of. Lastly, hunger. Hunger. Our hunger is the correct response to zeal. The hunger of God, our response to him is our own hunger for him. Um, I've tried this thing before when I'm like um, feeling a little chubby uh, where I do intermittent fasting. Anybody ever done that before? Okay. Some people basically you just only eat for eight hours of the day and it totally stinks. And um, so I, I, I'm, I've been doing this intermittent fasting thing and I'm hungry. I'm hungry from pretty much 6 a.m. until 1 p.m. It's a very hungry time of my days. And I work from home. Like, it's bad to be fasting when you're at home. It's like, there's a whole treasure trove of delicious delectables. All the things that I didn't really want to eat yesterday, I don't actually would eat any of those because I'm so stinking hungry. And I would just, (laughs) I'm intermittent fasting, and all of a sudden, I'd be, you know, working away, and it would almost be like, I just wake up in my kitchen. And I'm like, what, (laughs) what am I doing here? I would just all of a sudden come to, and I'm like looking in the fridge. It's like, Alex, it's only 10 a.m., you can't. You gotta wait till one. I'm like, what? Subconsciously, my hunger led me to the place to be fed. (laughs) When you're hungry for God, (laughs) you just find yourself in places to be fed. Hunger for God happens when you realize that you've exhausted all other options and you're willing to do anything to see him, to encounter him, to have him change your life. I want you bad enough even if it costs me. And I believe that God responds to that. There's a historian who wrote about that Scottish revival. He he said this. He says, it seems to me the simple truth we have here that God wills to give himself. He wills to give himself again and again and again. So long as we can find spaces into which he can pour himself, real hunger creates capacity for God. It's like, if you haven't felt God near you for a while, are you hungry? <laughs> is there, like, sometimes what we do is we actually eat stuff that we think is the da- our daily bread, but it's really bread disguised. It's really stones disguised as bread. <laughs> the temptation of Jesus was to eat stones that looked like bread rather than receive from the Father. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the Father. <laughs> So sometimes we're actually filling our stomachs with rocks (laughs) and God's like, I know you feel full but you're actually really hungry for my bread, my voice, my presence. Hunger, celebration, believing his promises, this is the correct response to his zeal towards us this Christmas. Let's stand together.